Welcome to the IVM Podcast Network. So I had this most amazing chat with none other than Ronnie Screwwala. He has so many dimensions. He is this creative person. He is this businessman. He is this sports person. He is this philanthropist. There are just so many layers in Ronnie's personality. But what really, really excites me is that in each of the layer, he's on the top. He's able to get the most out of himself and people around him. I also learned. uh what he does i mean his thinking is very very different and i think he distilled it in a very interesting way when he said what he does is largely common sense but he's able to fine tune it so i think you're going to really literally see elements of largely common sense and how he's able to take common sense into very uncommon business ideas and uh literally uh, excel at them Ronnie also brings about another very different thing of being an outsider. I think Ronnie was an outsider in literally everything he did, whether he was the movies business, whether it is television, whether it is kabaddi. I can tell you Ronnie can't play kabaddi, but uh, he always has been able to go out of his comfort zone and identify business ideas and be on top of his game by doing that. Most people try to keep centering around their own capabilities. but ronnie also has this excellent ability to work with others and maximize them so either you love him or you hate him but you cannot ignore him welcome to beneath the force the vishal gondal show in my entrepreneurial journey of over 20 years I've had the pleasure of knowing, interacting and being friends with some of the most amazing super achievers. Each one of them have achieved success in their field by harnessing their knowledge, passion and wealth and have become the force of good. It takes years for one to become an overnight success. I am trying to decode what they did so differently in these years to be where they are today. He has dabbled from making toothbrushes to starting the first cable TV operations in India. He's launched movies, he's launched games, he's launched sports teams, he's done TV broadcasting, he's done internet, he's done it all. Uh I'm talking of somebody none other than again somebody a dear friend, a guru, a mentor of mine, and none other than Ronnie Screwwala. Ronnie, welcome to the show. Welcome, thank you. Thanks for having me, Vishal. So, uh again, the question which comes to everybody's mind is that how are you able to do all these distinct and different things right i mean lot of things don't have any connection with each other but you not only do it but you somehow excel at all these various things right from toothbrush making to hopefully sending a satellite to space or you know doing something next yeah i don't think the satellite in space is yet on my thing but um well with the sole exception of of toothbrushes and i'll come back to that maybe a little later because we got a nice long chat ahead of us but um i would say that there's a lot of interconnection and i think some of the interconnections at a personal level is passion and um wanting to sort of be disruptive and i think that's at the bottom of many things that i think of doing like what can i bring that's a fresh intake to something and i think that's a driving force uh in the commonality of some of the things that you mentioned there i think um is a deep understanding or at least a curiosity constant curiosity going into a deep understanding of the consumer no but but when you started doing these things that time so now 
looking at things on the hindsight, you can see all these were connected. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's interlinked. Time, so if I got into media, it wasn't by strategy. It was because I was doing theater and I was doing front of camera hosting. So that gave me an intuitive sense of talking across to audiences at all given stages. Obviously, it got stored in the back of my left brain somewhere. And that culminated into at that time media. But if you ask me to define media at that early stage in my life, I wouldn't even know what the word meant. No, because every person who does stage is not able to do this at the same time. If you take the sure, same logic. Sure. So, so I think it's also with all your experiences for different people, what you gleam out of it. I think what I gleamed or what I took out of theater was uh, a very sharp level of being able to build my confidence, my communication skills, my ability for, for clarity and my ability for collaborativeness. So, and, and we'll talk about your theater journey in detail. Sure. But what I was really trying to understand was that given there are hundreds of opportunities and ideas in every field, how did you zero into a particular idea? How did you decide you're so going to So I think maybe this? your question is partly about multitasking and partly about selection process. And I think going back to the selection process, it would be very clearly, is it disruptive? So you mentioned Kabaddi, for example. And I'm thinking, you know, when I wanted to do sports, when I stepped out of media and entertainment, the closest thing I could think of that would not make me that homesick of media and yeah. entertainment was sports. Yeah, you were given a banwas from uh, that <laughs> industry for some That's time. right, at least. So I think it was, uh, and when I looked at that, you know, there was no concept of me looking at getting and doing something in cricket yeah. because, you know, there are thousands of people doing such incredible work. What am I going to do more in cricket? So I think the idea was, can I do something different? And what we did in football and what we're doing in football, which is much more focused towards training and what we're doing with Kabaddi. So that's the driving force. I think, can I be disruptive and can I add something that's quite different and unique in a particular way? And at the same time, can I use my skill sets that I think I've developed over the years, which is understanding a consumer with a lot of curiosity, which means constantly understanding the consumer, building a brand and going to that depth and building credibility. So what you are saying is that a lot of these ideas came to you because they were disruptive. Or opportunity knocks. It's a combination of both. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a combination. Because clearly Kabaddi was at that point yeah. of time. I know yeah. Um, yeah. Anand I didn't think, of, those. think about it. But even if you didn't think about it, opportunity knocks and seizing it is a very different yeah. ball game altogether. Yeah, because many people could, would have looked yeah. at Kabaddi as a... Yeah, I mean a conversation and then if there's a casual conversation, but you say, sorry, sorry, sorry can you just go back to what you just said? That's spotting an opportunity and that I think is also a differentiator. Yeah. But I, I'm more interested in knowing about your early years because as I said, opportunities now are seeking you and you possibly are seeing everything which is new in the field. But what was it like in the, I would say, late 90s when you really started and the early 2000 when the place was very, very different? It was... Uh, the yeah. whole media space itself was so new and television. Yeah. yeah. And so are you saying more in the media space or just my sense of... Because uh, you, you started as producing, producing TV shows first, yeah. right? And, yeah. and that was yeah. first Doodarshan and then Z and all these people. And then at one point of time, you started TV channel yourself. Sure. So what was that journey like? Well, I mean, no question about it that it was tough because at the core of building an organization and starting up on your own and being an entrepreneur in itself is a challenge. And I think at that stage, it was bigger challenges because it was not as socially acceptable as it is now. And even now, I think it's hardly socially acceptable still. Yeah. So we got a long way to go. And then the other luxury that everyone spouts out today is when I have an idea is how do I go get my funding? That's the only thing everyone, the first question everyone asks after my idea is how do I get funding? That's not even a question you could have asked at that time because there wasn't any ecosystem that would give you the funding and there wasn't any ecosystem with the bank giving you a loan. Yeah. 
I mean, imagine a bank giving a loan on intellectual property, but it just wasn't going to happen. But you were able to get funding very early on, both from funds as well as strategic investors. Uh, Earlier on, when I look back at the 20 years, yes. But early on, when I look forward to the first six years, no. So for the first six years of our business, there was no concept of getting a bank loan. There's no concept of getting uh, any friends and family because even they would would have turned foes if I had asked them for money. And there was no question of private equity. And actually, that teaches you some incredible lessons in life because it firstly forces you to manage and marry your books and, you know, income is equal Hmm. to expenditure or at least hopefully, hopefully higher than expenditure. And you get solution oriented, you get frugal, you get into a mode which teaches you a lot of stuff, which actually forms the culture and bedrock of yourself and the people that work with you. Got it. But coming back to your early years again, you know, when you were able to get all these, I remember at one point of time, even Rupert Murdoch was an investor in the company. Uh, how was it to convince them way back in early 2000, uh, the whole vision of what you're trying to do? Because the media yeah. space was... I think itself. it was it was definitely new and unique to me also. Um, I think the key part when we were looking at early investors, both one was Warburg Pincus, which was a private equity fund and a very large one at that making their very first investment into India, way before they made a lot more money on Airtel and Marico and some of the others. And uh, News Corp and 20th Century Fox and Star, i.e. Rupert Murdoch. And they were both different because one is a private equity, one is a strategic Strategic, uh, in that context. And I think with both, I I do remember, especially with uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, Zarina, my co-founder, was told to make the communication message that would do the sales job. And she came up with this line that said, the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. Okay. And I think that was partly because we were doing multiple things. We were doing airline in-flight programs. We were doing dubbing. We were doing television programs. We were doing a lot of things. And therefore, a lot of people kept asking us, but you're doing so many things. And what's the key focus? And we said, the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. (laughs) And I think that rung well. So that that there was a good positioning line. And I remember outside of two things. One is when, uh, you know, the main thing there was, and the second one we wanted to make sure is when new investors come in, always see that your toilet is in immaculate condition. Oh, that's an interesting tip. I think outside of an entrepreneur who I judge, I always go, if I'm ever going to, do business or invest in a company, I go check out the toilet. Well, that's a big hack for everybody out there. If you are looking for investors, <laughs> apart from having clean books of accounts, you should have a clean toilet. I think so. Yeah. I think so. It speaks a lot of volumes about the culture of a company and just the whole team spirit and what everyone thinks and basically how nitty gritty and how detailed is the founder or so, the CEO So I presume the all your investors, including... Uh, and I remember uh, telling everyone, we need to get this toilet really pristine. And everyone said, don't be stupid. Mr. Murdoch is coming for 45 minutes. He's not going to go to the toilet. And the first <laughs> thing he walked into the office, where's the restroom? <laughs> you know, so I think we might have scored high on that. And I think the, the whole being the sum of the parts really stuck with him. And that's how that happened. Wow. So I think it's all about getting that punchline. And I remember the same thing happened with UTV. It was the A to Z of entertainment, that campaign. I don't know of people, but I still remember it because it used to literally play on Star TV every every half an hour that ad used to play. So what was the whole thought around that? I think we were quite obsessed at that very early stage of building a brand, right? And we were all into what I would call B2B businesses. We were doing things for others. But we were not really the consumer-facing brand. And much later, we transformed that when we started a movie studio, we started our own broadcasting channels and whatever else. But at that particular stage, the only way we could do that is with some sense of an advertising. 
And actually, that came to us because Star had invested in us. And uh, necessity is a mother invention. Yeah, so they, they said, they, yes. No, they, we, want, we pitched programs, but for some reason, they were stuck to one or two other production houses that were giving them good programs yeah. or whatever else. But for some reason, whatever, you know, some on merits and some without merit, we just didn't get any programs. And I said, look, you own 49% of the company and you're not giving me a single program. Okay, then give me some ad time on your channel free, of course, so I can build the brand. And pretty much they said, oh, okay, all right. So that's how uh, we said, okay. And then we rustled back in one week and created this very sharp communication of the A to Z of entertainment. No, and that's exactly what it is. I think it's about crafting these messages yeah. which stay. Yeah. And whether it is Hangama or, yeah. you know. But Hangama even in our TV, movie thing, I think even today with the UTV, everyone talks about the three hands with the three yeah. different colors and the yeah, and, and I remember that was shot in the desert. Yeah. Uh, so, but before that, when those three hands oh, was yeah, there, yeah, the that was, hands, yeah. yeah. So that was something that everyone felt. So I think it's always the small thing that sticks out in the long run. So you did uh, UTV, the whole animation part with USL, all of that, and then you entered broadcasting. But in the middle, you also did another very unique business, which was teleshopping. I think yeah. you were literally the pioneer of that, but yeah. that was possibly a little ahead of its time. Yeah, like so, many things, like our movie Swadesh was ahead of its time. Like, yeah. And you know, in the movie business, we always, whenever there's a flop, we keep saying, well, this was before its time. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's an out-and-out out flop, like a like a himmatwala would yeah. be, or, or a joker would be, then you can't joker, even say yeah, before yeah, it's yeah, time because it's joker. not even there's no, there'll never be a time for it to be ever told. But um, yeah, so I think uh, home shopping was very much before its time because there was no credit card penetration. You're only the post office to really give deliveries. Yeah. There was the concept no, of COD VPP, and cash. It was called VPP. VPP yeah. that there was time. cash on delivery was a big challenge. Uh, and I think more than anything else was the credibility to not buy things that you could not touch and feel. And that part we miscalculated with the consumer, that the ability to not buy, you know, now today, the entire thing is and, and about... And just to give everybody the context, uh, this was 2000, which which year was this? This was about in the early, very early 2000s. Yeah, very know, early. About two, three or four years. So we're talking almost so that's, 17, that's, that was the 15 thing. years yeah. back. I think yeah. the worst part of that is that we had an instant hit as our first product. Now, most people would think, why is that the worst part and not the best part? But actually... It didn't allow us to question the concept. It didn't allow us to see past that one product. And what was that product? It was a chapati maker. Oh, okay. It was a chapati maker. And it was incredible because that first year we thought, we didn't think for one second we were before our time. If that product wasn't an instant hit, maybe we wouldn't have been in business much longer because then it would have told us it would have been very slow beginning. We would have constantly questioned what we wanted to do. We would have had a survival plan. We would have got our cost rights. We would have done a lot of things. But that one product gave us such a josh that we felt, wow, this is it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we couldn't cope up with delivery. We couldn't do that. And then it was relegated to a small-scale industry. So we had to become manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the learning there were two, three yeah. things. One was you think when you start off and you got a galloping head, you kind of, it blinkers you and makes you, does yeah. not allow you to see everything around yeah. that you should see. S similarly, I remember way before Netflix and YouTube and all the streaming services, you had something called Shark Stream. That was a streaming service, I, again. Out of it, Singapore. Out of Singapore. This was again, which year? I was like 2002 or? Yeah, it would be in that. Yeah, I mean. It's a little mushy right now, but it'll be in that 2000, 2000, 2000 range. And yeah. I, I it was still, audio and video. And I think the trigger for that is because we were in Singapore and we were creating content there. Uh, there was a very talented gentleman there who came in and joined us to launch that with us as a co-founder. Um, and, you know, obviously the bandwidth and technology in Singapore yeah, and was one. 
crazy they, they at that had a time, base yeah. you know they, they were the one people even above the us at that time in terms of the ability to just watch streaming stuff no but it's amazing right what you did in 2002 today everybody is talking about amazon prime and netflix yeah. and all yeah. of that yeah. but, but these were think, ideas you yeah. had done long think, time back. i think some of these is also about markets and market size you know i think we can't jump and do what we do here and compare them with very mature markets like the US yeah. that's quite flawed in its approach because those are ready made markets they also are hyper competitive markets so if you don't know how to compete you'll get screwed but at least there's a ready made market here is the opposite side you may not have that much of pressure and competition the only competition you will have is the herd mentality and therefore the discounting mentality and therefore making completely uneconomic yeah. for everyone to be in that mentality but it's not a ready made market everything is about the uphill task of market making and wow. i think today entrepreneurs in india when you look at that ecosystem you cannot compare and say oh this happens in the uk or this happens in germany or this happens india even in japan unique, yeah. i wouldn't say it's unique because that's sometimes is a cop out but it is that you need to be prepared to market make for that you need to be prepared to be patient for that you need to recalibrate all your aspirations that you made into a silly excel sheet and understand that it's not going to be valid yeah. I mean, we remember we have made a lot of those Excel sheets yep. together now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that. But so you've done uh, animation, you've done television, you've done internet, you've done radio, you've done in-flight programming. But I think the biggest break which came is when you entered movies. So how was well, that? And movies and broadcasting. I'm yeah, saying. I, both. I'm, uh, and movies and, and of course broadcasting. Yeah. But movies, I would say, was possibly the biggest break because you were literally the first outsider entering the business. You were not a Kapoor or a Khan or uh, you know any yeah. of the yeah. the movie families are yes. doing it. So how was that? And how did you, from being an outsider in the movie business, became the number one studio? How did that happen? So I think. at the sort of base level when we were clear we wanted to be a b2c brand we were quite clear that we couldn't become a real b2c brand without being in big screen okay and you know the medium screen which is the television set would always be there but the big screen just gallops ahead in terms of brand perception awareness and sort of feeds into a lot of other stuff plus gives you so much of consumer insight on a friday morning every week uh, that nothing else can give you so i think between the fact that we wanted to scale and we wanted to do a b2c business it was inevitable that we would need to do movies now that's just clinical look at it right and i think the next part there was for us it took us about 3 years to figure that industry out i mean our first five movies were complete flops total disasters total failures i think our cfo came in enough times to tell us to shut this business <laughs> down and we have no business to be in it and actually that should ring true right because here's a here's somebody who had not been in this kind of uh business 90% of the people would say do you really read hindi scripts kind of situation <laughs> with this big question mark in their mind so um and but, you did this was something with shringa right the early days were something with uh, no i think that was just distribution, distribution when we got yeah. into our movie part of the business and i think some of our first few movies was lakshan swades and um uh, mission kashmir and uh, fiza hmm. and um chalte chalte yeah um, ironically and two of them li- life in a metro was yeah that came a little later, later. So I think um sometimes when you're looking at that you have to figure out are you going to set the ship and sail or not and you know and that's what I tell people a lot even today like if you're constantly keep mulling on a situation 
you're not going to be able to do that. So at some ship time, the ship has to sail and you'll figure out in the high seas and but, high but waters. But how did you get the Bollywood guys to take you seriously? Because, you know, they had this notion that, oh, you know, if how can somebody come and make movies? I'm not sure know? in the first two, three years it took me seriously. I think they looked at us as people with a sense of ethics and integrity, a sense of very clear mission that we were going to be in this for the long term. That was important. To communicate that we were going to be in this for the long term and not just a one-off was very, very important. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, maybe they just felt, all right, so this is just uh, one more who can come in and finance it. So whether we like it or not in the beginning, it took us some time to be able to earn respect at a creative level and at a long-term level. But I think uh, what, again, the lesson to me is this whole proverb that says, if you can't beat them, join them. And I think that that actually is, doesn't work anymore. I think it's archaic, mm. right? Because you're, you're, you have to be different. And if you want to be disruptive, the phrase is outcast now, but that if you can't beat them, join them. In fact, you can't beat them, try something else and yeah. think of think of some other way in which you're going to do that. And I think our focus was, therefore, to look at first-time directors. If you can't directors. beat them, change the game. That's yeah, what change the game in yeah. that sense. And to us, uh, you know, finding like-minded directors and writers who wanted to tell a different narrative, not that the other narrative was anything was wrong with it, just gave us a sense of positioning. And so I'd say even though we did movies like Swades and Lakshan and others that, and Chalte Chalte, which was commercially yeah. successful, it wasn't, I think we really landed when we obviously did Rang Santi, you know. Yeah. And that was what I would call sailing against the wind in every sense of the word. And Wednesday was also on the same. And then the rest, then it opened up a whole new, it gave a sense of seriousness and a validity. So what did that mean? It meant that you had to go against uh, wind. It meant you need a lot of guts to take some bold decisions at a time where most people would have stepped out of the industry saying, you know, this is not working for me. Uh, And just sticking it out. Because I think Amongst all those days, the only thing I could remember me saying to myself is, I don't have a choice. I have to be in this business. So, so, so just to summarize, so your strategy, and I remember you telling this to me, that your strategy was instead of going after the big stars, you wanted to go and partner with the directors and the people who had the story writers and the creative talent and not the acting talent. And that was really the... Yes. And that is because, uh, and it's not like uh, it was not to work with the big stars. And, you know, Rangde Basanti also had Amir Khan and everything. But, but I think it was much more about uh, getting the script right and getting the director right and then casting it right. Yeah. Because the other way it became a project, this way it became a movie. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a big difference between so, the and two. It's like basically invest in the product. I think that's really yeah. what it was. I yep. think rather than investing yep. in the marketing, the, yep. the stars can bring a lot of marketing and the opening people to kind of give you the opening night. But after that, it Absolutely. is the content, the talent, the yeah, script, Yeah, I have to say, direction. 10 years back, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, you know, so a star could pull you through for five, six, seven, or even an entire opening week. Today, it's brutal. Yeah. Today, it's brutal. Yeah, it's word of mouth by Friday afternoon. Yeah. And that's how it should be. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the word of mouth which is making. So movies, we all know what a phenomenal success you've been able to create out of that business. But television is another completely different game where you again entered the kids genre. And I remember the early days of Hangama when you were ideating it and then Bindas and all these things. How did you decide on such a niche segment? You know, you could have again launched a general entertainment channel. Like no, everybody I think else. I couldn't have. And that again came down to, I didn't have a choice. 
the same that applied and stuck me stuck me out through a lot of bad days in movies i think the same applied here and the, and here i had a dual i didn't have a choice one i didn't have a choice not to be in broadcasting which means i had to be in broadcasting if i wanted to build a business of scale and the second one is i couldn't afford to launch a very expensive general entertainment channel without severely diluting myself or raising capital at a time when there were already well established players uh and therefore the best way to get into that was very sharp uh target focused and we can call them niche but to me it was very demographic focused channels because that would have much less capital and i could do 10 of them for the price of one yeah so the idea was again what building talk, a bouquet you know we talk and again in the internet world where everybody's talking about going after a targeted segment so you chose the two segments which was kids and youth yeah. at that point of time yeah. and again how did you beat i mean how did hangama became the number one kids channel and that happened like like in 18 months or so did Again I think really fast. you know again it's nice to say nice things about it in 2020 hindsight and for the first year it didn't work and we spoke a little bit about home shopping before right so the only thing that really shut down was home shopping for us because it really worked in the first year and everything else that we did stuck it out and really worked for us because it didn't work in the beginning same with movies yeah. same with broadcasting and in hangama you got shinshan Yeah but for the first year as i said nothing worked for yeah. us and every single person wagged their finger at us and said i told you so you should never have been doing this in the first place but i think uh, the disruptiveness for us and for everyone who was involved uh was really um looking at programming uh that we were not beleaguered with the good part was that the other five or six very successful channels at that time were all multinationals and all of them had their own content libraries so whatever the indian executives could do all they could do is fill in time slots with their existing they didn't have any choice but to do that so here we had you know where again zaina was the one who had originated and taken charge she came up with the idea of hangama and the channel uh and the box was let's go to japan and let's yeah. look at uh, picking up Doremon some and, and shinshan yeah. yeah until date today i think uh, mother still catch me at <laughs> cocktail parties and you're the one who brought shinshan into this country and i'm saying yeah yeah but about 9 years back we sold the channel yeah <laughs> yeah shinshan was yeah. the naughty little kid which all the kids really imitated yeah. it was yeah and it's it's amazing that even when disney app you know 18 months later bought the channel it was it is and was so undisney like yeah I think Disney has even now left Hangama largely untouched. Yes, it's 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 the only channel in the world for them that's age segment that is not Disney branded. Amazing. And of course that also led you to another crazy business which got us together which is computer games and yep. mobile games and yep. how again and, and you made a big bet in gaming. So yep. what was that all about? I think it was again about building the B2C business, building a diversified business and I think if I was looking at the touch point we were in the big screen we were in the by then time television was called the small screen and movies yeah. were called the big screen and then when the mobile came in and everything else then that became the small screen and television became the medium yeah. screen. So as soon as we relegated television to the medium screen we had to look at the small screen as part of our entire B2C experience because obviously there was an entire If you focus on that millennium audience and whatever else it was very clear to us that they were all moving to mobile and in mobile more than content it was games. Um I think there what I would say I stepped way outside my boundaries which I didn't do in the broadcasting by launching a GEC channel which could have worked but the odds were 10 again 10 is to 1 you know. Um but here I went in and said maybe this is something where the whole world is your oyster and the whole world is the market and I think you know from that point of view I made quite a lot of devastating mistakes I mean the console gaming was a big yes. big yeah yeah 
That was definitely a big dent and um, definitely, you know, one of our multiple, multiple failures. So I think that time you had acquired, so you acquired true games in, in yeah, the so US. Yes, we acquired a, a sort of a UK-based company that was focused on console. That was Ignition. That was Ignition. Yeah, that was console. And, you know, with you, it was India yeah, Games and India that was games, mobile yeah. with much more an India market, but primarily a South Asia India market. And in the US, uh, which was much more... The sort they of were M- doing some MMO MMORPG. MMO so you took bet literally on all yeah. three platforms, yeah. console, yeah. mobile yeah. and... Yeah. Uh, which in all hindsight and it, at that time, it was obviously silly, absurd and no, but way out of You never know what bets are going of course, to work, right? Of yeah. course, no regrets. No, no, absolutely, right? I mean, uh, we, we were all together at that point yeah. of time. Yeah. I think you also made another international bet that is making Hollywood movies and yeah. you made a few of them, but then you quickly exited that. So what was the the learnings around that I think it I think you, it you started as a personal Night, passion Shaman, it started right? as a personal yeah. passion when I when I did uh, Namesake with Mira Nair and 20th Century Fox because I wanted to do a film with Mira uh, obviously I wanted to understand the international market and I was very keen that you know an Indian brand can get out and strike itself there and then after that did M. Night Shyamalan and The Happening which actually also yeah. commercially did exceptionally yeah. well you know I mean it was a 30 million dollar movie that had 160 million dollars in just US yeah. box office but I think, to me, it was getting outside my focus area where if our strength was Bollywood and what we wanted to do here, I would have much spent the same amount of effort, time, resources, money, everything that I had. And I didn't have unlimited of any of those um, to see how we can move the Indian cinema to a much wider diaspora worldwide than to be a second fiddle. Because even if I did a movie every two years, you were always second fiddle to a studio. So yeah. two, three things bothered me. One was... It wasn't moving the needle and it was great as a passion, but it wasn't moving the needle. There was so much too, there was so much more to be done here in the same precinct that could make us stand out and become a leader because we weren't at that stage. Uh, and I think the third one was we'd always be subservient to a major Hollywood studio and we'd always be the co-producer, but not the originator. Mm-hmm. And for those reasons, then we didn't do any more. Yeah. The Vishal Gondal Show will be right back after this break. Hi, I'm Amit Verma, the host of the weekly podcast, The Scene and the Unseen. In my show, I examine the scene effects and the unintended consequences of public policy and private action. I show how policies meant to help the poor often end up hurting the poor. I've done episodes so far on demonetization, GST, surgical strikes, immigration and MRP. And I will continue my forensic assault on the truth in the weeks to come. Catch the show every Monday on the IVM Podcast app or any other podcasting app that you prefer. Or visit seenunseen.in for all the latest updates. I think a lot of people don't know this. People talk call you an angel investor and VC now. But you were doing investing way, way earlier. I mean, I remember with India Games, you were literally came in and became one of our largest investors in 2006. So what was it like for you at that point of time looking at investments and how is it different today versus what you were doing before? So I think in the media business, maybe the one thing that I didn't have I mean, uh, movies was an extension of content, but games was a mixture of technology, consumer content, uh, and a lot of other stuff. And I think there, for me, the calculation was more if I set it up ground upwards, it would take a lot longer and I have a different DNA and not something that I would ever like to look at it. So the idea was to partner and find co-founders and mm-hmm. get into a co-founder relationship with various people. And therefore, one took that route in games. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight. No, and, and we literally worked like 
partners yep. and co-founders. Absolutely. Exactly. I think that's how. Yeah. And that was the DNA there mm-hmm. that, you know, there is some things that I'll bring to the table and there's some things I'll defer to the other person to take it forward because mm-hmm. that's that person's passion. And there were days on which you identified with that yeah. and there are days on which you <laughs> yeah, did not identify with that. Identify, of course, <laughs> we had our share of disagreements yeah, and that's fights, good. but you know, that was all fun. But so you did gaming. I'm just trying to recollect all the various things you did. And then one fine day, uh, you decided to sell the company. And of course, I was there at that point of time. But I want to hear from you, how tough was that decision? And why did you make that decision? I don't know about the tough part, because I think uh, a little sometimes... Because you are, little, you are going back and doing movies again. You're doing some of these no, things. No, no, no. I'm not doing any of that again, yeah. other than movies. And I can come to what my motivation for doing that is five years after okay. I exited the business. But I think that's... I'm quite a clinical person when it comes to taking decisions. Uh, that is not on my personal life. You know, when it comes to business, it's a little bit more no, and, and actually, that's a very amazing trait of yours and I wish to learn more about that because people get so emotionally attached yeah. to things and yeah. I've seen you being clinical about things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so, I don't mean clinical in a brutal sense, yeah, no, but I mean, clinical in a... Because I think there's a small sliver realistic. of a difference. I mean, you're realistic, I would say. Yeah, I think there's a very sliver of a difference between being passionate about a business and being emotional about a business. And actually, it can be a sliver or it can be a wide moat. And for me, it's a moat. And for most people, it's a little fungible. Mm -hmm. And I think, firstly, with all due respect to my own thought, the idea didn't originate from me. The idea originated from Disney. Okay. To pop the question and say, are you interested in selling? Okay. I don't think I was scratching my head and said, now this is it. Or I was stretching my arms and saying, I need to sell. So to their credit, they looked at this as an opportunity. And I think the trigger was because we were having so many strategic discussions about what they should do and what they should do with us and what UTV should do. And I think the commonalities rung so well that I said, this sounds ridiculous. Why don't we put it all together? Mm -hmm. Then I think the onus was on me to make the final decision in the call. But I think, um, yeah, I think it was a clinical decision that took a better part of 30 days. Yeah. Uh, and then there was still nine months after that yeah, of lots of uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. And a lot yeah. of uncertainties. I would say literally till three days before it was going to close, it may not have closed. Uh, they, you had to delist. I mean, the whole process was. Yeah. yeah but even so much, outside yeah. of that also, I think there was, there were a lot of, you know, variables in the entire thought process. But so after doing the deal, I saw you as Ronnie, who's creator founder and CEO of UTV and all of that. And then I saw you as managing director of Disney and I could see two different Ronnie's actually. So what did you see yourself? Did you see yourself differently when you were running uh, Disney as an employee of Walt Disney company versus when you were running uh, UTV as your See, own? I think two things, you know, the day, even in your own company, you're not a hundred percent shareholder then you're a CEO yeah. and you should treat it like that because there's somebody else who's an investor, whether they're 5% or whether the person is 40%. I think then you have to differentiate being a shareholder and being a CEO. So I think to that extent that I was acclimatized in a company where when I, even I sold it, I was, you know, around the 25% marker. So mm-hmm. 75% was widely held, of mm-hmm. course, with the single largest shareholder being Disney already. So I think one was acclimatized to the context of it being a widely held company and therefore the role of you as a CEO, but as a CEO founder, which gives you a lot. I think the difference between uh, my role as CEO of UTV and my role as managing director of the Walt Disney Company as was a shift, which maybe I didn't adapt to very well. Uh, and maybe the reason why in one or two years I felt I should move on was my very strong belief in myself, a realization more than belief that I'm not very good at executing on somebody else's vision. 
So I think when I was CEO of a company that I founded, it was a vision. It would get blessings from a board of directors, whatever else, but I was driving my own vision. And I think when I was working as the managing director of the Walt Disney Company India, it was much more about implementing somebody else's vision. And maybe that's something I just felt was not in my DNA. Mm-hmm. But that was a shift. So what you may have seen was, uh, you know, better part of one and a half years of acclimatizing to that, trying oneself to do a good job. And I think, you know, one failed in a couple of ways uh, in terms of really getting the culture, because I felt very strongly that a culture needed to be integrated. Uh, and I'm sure a couple of things yeah. one did right too. No, I remember when the, the whole decision of selling to Disney happened and when India Games had to take the same call, I think my decision was very simple and I had said that I'm going to only do it as long as I report to to Ronnie. I think for me, it was really as clear as that. It made a big difference on yeah. working with the right leadership. Yeah. Uh, but the question now I have for you is that during all these times, you know, UTV was never a one-man show. You always were able to create senior management teams and very, very smart people to run all these businesses and all these units and all these partnerships where you invested in. So how did you come across such amazing people? You know, No, I think it's not about necessarily coming across amazing people. It's after some period of time, people mushroom and develop into that. So I think, you know, it always in hindsight, people think that's the way it is. And if you see that in most companies, including large multinationals, the people who really mushroomed have been around 10, 15 years, five years, six years in an organization and whatever else. So I think, uh, and you know, that goes back to your very first question you asked me is how do you sort of multitask? And I think the only way one can really multitask is being very clear of your limitations and your assets, but building a phenomenal team of people around. And, you know, in my first innings with UTV, it was always building a team of people, then empowering them, nurturing them and mentoring them, but allowing them a lot of freedom to do what they wanted to do, but having the strongest sense of ownership. And today in my second innings in the last five years, it's all about co-founders. So I took that and said, I don't want to run a business. And I think that's, again, something that I learned from my early days there. That at some stage, if you can get people, it's not about finding them always. It's about um, jointly creating in that context. So I Mm. think some of the people who really stuck out and did very well were people who joined us in a completely different role. Completely different role and grew to a completely different role by the time they mushroomed and became either the managing director of Disney after me to the head of something else or somebody in business development well, I mean, or creative Sid is, people. Sid is a great example, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. Sid was at one point of time doing marketing. Then yeah, he, was he joined doing, us as the marketing head at Hangama. Yeah, Hangama, I remember meeting That's him right. there. Yeah, yeah. So from Hangama to yeah. movies. So credit to, to all of them that, you know, from their point of view. So it's attitude, approach, ambition, all of that plays a big role in what you want to do. But is there a difference in your selection process? How do you find... That's what I'm saying because these people are always there. How no, do you... Bishal, I would say for the first seven, eight years of UTV, I had placement agencies and my HR head coming into my room and saying, you can't fire people the way you're firing them. Uh, and nobody will come want to come and work at UTV. And you're not the best uh, team guy and you're not the best <laughs> HR guy. So <laughs> we remember those sorry, discussions yes, too. Yes. yes. Um, let me be absolutely blunt. And I think every agency goes, and today when we're starting up with Upgrad, that's the first conversation, you know, that's just yesterday evening, I was asking my three co-founders, guys, we're going to build a very, very ambitious plan over the next three years. So do we want to become the top 10 companies where everyone feels the best place to work with or do we want to be a result oriented? And I'm not saying it's either or. 
Mm-hmm. But you can't take an example of Google, which has a multinational and well-funded approach yeah. and then figure out that if they, they can do what they want to do in India and then becomes a fun place to work with. So I think its priorities are at a different stage. So to answer your question very directly, it's not a question of the selection process. I think it's been much more because I've been as wrong as I have been right. I think the differentiation part is that in six months to take a hard call when it's not working for the opposite person or for you mm-hmm. and the company. That is something that people don't take those calls on. And I think I took a fair amount of those. And I've seen that a lot, right? I mean, the people who didn't work, get rid of them faster, the better. Yeah, and it's not not a get rid of because that sounds like the fault lies with that person. Mm -hmm. The fault could lie with you. The fault could lie with the company or the fault could lie with a combination of all three. But it's not going to work. It's not going to get productive and we're wasting our time. That actually is a very difficult call to take, but I think it's the most productive call. Is there one question you ask everybody in the interview, which is a common question? I think it's, I don't know whether it's a question, but I'm trying to size them up for their attitude and their curiosity. Give me an example of how would you size up somebody's curiosity? What would you... The follow-up question that he would have to my question that I'm asking him, frankly, because if the person has not asked me... Couple of, and I don't say when you pause and say, so do you have any questions for me? That not those questions. That hmm. comes in the category D in any case. But I think... Is it a conversation or is it an interview? Okay. And I think if somebody's really uh, done their homework, you know, they can say, yeah, that's fair, but, you know, that's what you feel, you know, and then there's a conversation. And I think that stood out for me quite, hmm. quite a lot. In fact, one thing I must tell you, Ronnie, and I know I maybe told you this before that I really, really enjoyed interacting with you because I could always learn new things. And even at Goki, for everybody out here, I almost come here once in two, three months to yeah, kind of give you a business update and learn from yeah. you. This is exactly yeah. what yeah. we used to do at Yeah, but I think it's, it's, it's mutual, yeah. you know, yeah. and I think, you know, when I, when I go across and sometimes give lecture at B schools and whatever else, and everyone says, you know, thank you for being here. And I'm saying, actually, no, thank you, because of the simple reason that I'm also going there because I want to understand what are they thinking what are the kind of questions I'm getting gives you a very good sense. So if you want to be out there, a conversation piece is very, very critical and important. I think I miss that a lot. You mm. miss that a lot when your day-to-day routines, you've got to be able to get some time out to get out there and do things that are not in your normal planner that may not have an immediate response, reaction or result for you at that point in time. Mm. No, no, absolutely. And I think, again, I have seen people who've been now working with you for like 20, 25 years and then there are people who do not who are there for a few months. And I think it's really, so how is this? I think what I feel good about today, maybe it wasn't that good 10 years back, is that even the people that I work with only for six months do come back and have good chats with me and we've had a good equation. And and maybe they felt, okay, I know at that stage, you know, might have been a hard call for you to take or me to take. But maybe because of that, they went forward on their career and they may not have done it with me. I think you probably would have one of those hit rates that everybody who has worked for you at some point of time is today either a CEO of a company yeah. or yeah. A, a head somewhere, you know, when I meet Anand or when yeah. I meet no, all no, lots, these people. Lots, and right? I think that's I mean, a huge sense of pride, know. huge sense of pride. And again, as I said, they've not all grown up with us in the company, but they could have gone away in six months. And maybe exactly. that's the reason why they're doing so well also. Exactly, exactly. So I take well, full responsibility for those hard <laughs> calls also. No, but those hard calls are important, right? Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is uh, at the end of the day business Absolutely. and you need to take the hard calls. Also, you have this amazing ability of being at 30,000 feet talk strategy and then 
go down to one feet and suddenly talk about something very operational and something which is you know why is somebody buying too much stationery just an example so how do you balance between that and how do people uh, how do people react to that ability because I have not seen many people do yeah it is tough actually from so if you're asking me how I do it and why I do it uh, that's one aspect how do people react that's a whole new that's a whole new ball game right and I think it takes some time for people who interact with me maybe fellow entrepreneurs co-founders or just people who work with me or just associates and friends uh, but I think this is very important. I think it is a required mandatory uh, requirement of leadership mm-hmm. uh, where you've got to be in charge of the macro and the micro. And if I'm doing a review meeting, I'm shocked at the level that sometimes that the person doesn't have some basic part of their domain details at their fingertips, which is a must. Yeah, and, and Ronnie, I think this is the problem today of, unfortunately, a lot of the VC-funded companies mm-hmm. where the boards are just, you know, have... And most people on the board member do not have the operational knowledge, so they cannot ask the operational questions. So it all remains at the 30,000 feet level without really understanding what's going on. So that's really what is happening today. I mean, and you know many companies yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a different discussion a little bit, Bishal, because firstly, I think, yes, that's they've chosen to be a venture capitalist and a private equity. So their job is not necessarily to be. And some of them are entrepreneurs that have converted to be VCs and Ps, which is great. And some of them have not. But I think that's their job. The problem arises is where the person who's taken the money from them, i.e. the founder or the entrepreneur, is not clear about the fact that therefore, this is an interaction where I'm going to take their suggestions, but I'm going to do what I want to do uh, and have the conviction and clarity to do that rather than saying, I want to please the person there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the conflict yeah. really comes. That that ability, and that's my biggest input and advice to people. Firstly, my input to a lot of people is, stop having multiple shareholders in your company if you don't know how to handle them. Yeah, Because of- obviously, every shareholder is going to have a different view. It's not that person's fault. But if you have five shareholders, you should know how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. You should be able to understand that, therefore, now it's a lot more consensus, a lot more collaborativeness. But on your side... 10 times more conviction to tell everyone, I've heard all of what you want to say, but for the next six months, this is what I want to do and this is why I want to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's really, again, so, so the question is, how do you do this? That's exactly my question. How okay. do you train your brain to do this? See, firstly, the training the brain comes when it's about, you know, what are you studying and what, what are you understanding about the market on both sides? Because if you can't be a macro person... Unless you are a macro person. Because in the gaming business, you could ask certain questions which somebody who's not in the games business... And I think it's fine-tuning common sense. That's how I would put that as a commodity. It's really fine-tuning common sense. Fine-tuning common sense. But common sense requires some sense of reading, curiosity, being out there, understanding, listening, being a phenomenal listener... And just getting, just soaking it all in, right? So one may think now at a particular stage in it, why do I have to sit for an entire day in a conference of something and listen to everything else? But sometimes one just goes mm. and does that. Where everyone says, oh, but you know, and just one week back, I went to a very interesting conclave and I was listening. Everyone there was convinced I'd come there to speak and was looking in the IT and said, but you're not a speaker. I said, no, I've just come to listen. I said, really? <laughs> really? So I said, yeah. I mean, it just sounded like an interesting, three very interesting panels. And I just wanted to just... Because sometimes you get so bogged down with a lot of the stuff. So, 
that's fine tuning your common sense that mm-hmm. can allow you to do with the macro because macro yeah. you can't get philosophical macro also means you need to ask the right pertinent well, questions and that's exactly why you know i've been now going to ted for almost 9 yeah. years yeah. and yeah. the reason i go there is because you can not only fine tune your common sense but learn from the ultimate absolutely. teacher right so i absolutely. think a lot of people only go to conferences where they are speaking which i yeah. think is no, certainly think not the it's a time commitment that you need to take but i think those are the ones where it completely refreshes your mind. and that's yeah. the only way you can do the macro and the micro in fact i think fine tuning common sense could be the title of your next book it is so phenomenal right it is a, a good one I'll write it's, it down. it's it's a simple it's it's just i'm excited about the next book but yeah. it's good to know the title of the a book that i'm not yeah, decided like, to write dreams with your eyes open <laughs> is such an amazing title but i think what you just said fine tuning common sense i think that's really about simplifying the problem yeah. and then going and focusing See, on the problem that's that's why areas. i agreed readily to this one and a half hour podcast with you because I I always felt yeah sure I'm happy to share uh, and that's lovely and it's fun yeah. to chat but something will come out of it no, no, maybe this is what's come yeah, out of it it's come out I, I think it's a phenomenon you should definitely use this as a title of a book or maybe a movie you know yeah. no I think the movie may not make sense but but a book Mind for sure yeah. so Ronnie again you know your entire career and you are you know still I think you have a long career in life ahead in your version i call it version 3 because i consider version 2 as the part when you were working with disney according to me that was ronnie version 2 which was very different because i have seen version 1 and version 2 so i call this ronnie version 3 so how is version 3 upgraded differently and yeah. i want to so you call upgrade. version 3 but which i call my second innings um i think it's very different it's really very different not just because the sectors what what is in but i think you know i was giving an interview a couple of weeks back and like we came up with uh, the common sense phrase right yeah. now um what i just said instinctively it's not something i thought of was that it started because i feel quite liberated about the fact that um i don't need a job but i want a job so and i think if you can look at life in that context then yeah. suddenly it has a very different meaning to it mm-hmm. right it means that you can say a lot more knows to a lot more things when you don't need a job but you want a job yeah. so the minute you have that luxury in life to say no more than what you can for whatever reason sometimes it could be for socio economic reasons because you do need a job because you do need the money or you're in a treadmill you're a listed company or you've got some private equity but even now that is there and it's everything there it just liberates you to have a very different sense and a priority to what you want to do in life so that i want to preserve for my entire second innings hopefully which will be in you know the rest of my life uh because that just gives you a very different perspective on life mm-hmm. um so, and the second one is i don't want to really personally run something on an operating basis on my own when it mm-hmm. comes to business that's something that is also equally important to me and that really started because of our massive commitment to our social organization which is the swadesh foundation because once you spend that kind of time uh, with the swadesh foundation it's not fair for me to give any company that says because i'm going to spend 30 to 40% of my time there there's no way i can take a full time assignment on any company even if it's my own and say i'm going to spend only 60% of time on that so i think those are the two parts there and because i can say no to so many things um that's why one looked at sectors I didn't want to run them which means the first thing I need to do is find co-founders mm-hmm. and people that I can work with for 10 years 15 years and 20 years uh and without that not get into anything else and I think those are some of the parameters that have got me into education into sports 
And the movies part actually is, is just the fun of it. It's, yeah. I think it's unfinished business in my mind. But the luxury of going in there that says, I can't say no, which is sometimes, you know, we were Very running powerful, a listed yeah. company. We were, we had a movie studio, you know, you, you have you to, make a, you, you to make a slate to make. You had a slate to make, you know, so 50% of what we did, we wanted to do and 50% we had to do. Yeah. But so that to me, that said that I have unfinished business in this sector and yet I can say no more than I can say yes is a great way to do that. And I think in education, in sports, in private equity and in the social sector, I think these are my five universes right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and the, the reason is different is, you know, these five different clusters of things that I'm doing versus just the media and entertainment sector that I was in. For me to be able to be so macro and micro, as you call it, mm-hmm. in five sectors uh, just bounces me out of bed every morning. And how do you keep in touch with all these various actors? Because today there is so much happening in the field of digital education, yeah. sports, yeah. Yeah. internet. You're also yeah. doing esports. Yeah. There are so many things happening. So how do you keep yourself abreast of all of these things? No, I think that's critical because if you want to play even that role of of you know mentor, non-executive chairman, or active, and again, most important macro and micro, because I don't think I'm ever going to lose that yeah. touch. So yes, for all my co-founders also, there are days in which I can get irritatingly disgusting by being uh, <laughs> your micro, emails, yeah, by your, being micro, the morning emails, yeah, yeah, or whatever, whichever form. But that's critical. I think that doesn't go away. I think that never does. No, go. I believe me, I actually miss that a lot. And uh, uh, for people who don't know this, I think it's very important to be able to get both perspectives. Yeah. And I think it's very rare to get it from one source. Normally, you have different people who can give you this perspective. and But getting that at one source is very important. So you read a lot. How do you keep in touch with all these things? How yeah, I think I, talk, I, I just listen a lot. I do read a lot. But I think I listen a lot more than even read a lot, actually. So... You know, I could be a fly on a wall in many aspects and it's not going to conferences, but sometimes even in the interactions with Mm -hmm. people. So, you know, in our upgrade, we have the weekly meeting, which I have no role to play there because I'm not the CEO. But I just sit for that one hour and most people kind of look at me saying, Mm. he's not said a word. I've educated you already a lot in the wearable space, in the insurance space. (laughs) All the health tech, yeah. Yeah. I get that, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so. so that's it. And like you said, when you come over for the one hour, I'm happy to have the conversation because... I just have to get one or two points from anything else for that mm. hour to be worth the hour or a day to be worth the hour. And therefore, mm. I don't consider any meeting a useless meeting. No, and that's exactly that's. If you look at it from that perspective, it's very different because you are trying to distill the information yeah. to yeah. even one or two points, which could be of so much value. Correct. And I think that's what I keep telling people that you know the best thing to do is meet people. Yeah. You can't be sitting in your own little no. place and then expecting no. all the knowledge to come no. to you. I think no. it's about no. it's about interaction. No. And I think the other part is you, you just can't do it again in front of your laptop and iPad and just think yeah, yeah. that you know Google and and all well, the being all, on Twitter cannot yeah be all of those. All of those are my dis- information dissemination context. I don't think that's that's also the only way to go because there's a certain sense of on the ground listening that can only happen there. And you know, in education, I'll tell you, um, in our office downstairs, we have these open house sessions uh, at least twice or thrice a week, okay, from seven to eight in the evening. And I just walk down there and do a one hour session where anyone can ask any question to me. Mm-hmm. And it, Sometimes we have 50 people, sometimes 100 people turn up for those. And I think think a big turning point there was when you decide to publish all your experiences in a book, uh, Dreams With Your Eyes Open. And I think that was the real turning point on how you opened up yeah, the it was absolutely world. amazing. Every time I look down at that shelf, I'm amazed as to how I actually wrote a book in the first place because this was just not in my DNA yeah. 
to sit down with that discipline and write it down. So by the way, we are going to have a few copies of your book also given out. We are going to have a little uh, contest with this where people can ask some questions. So we'll be getting those things signed by you. But uh, I think it's one of the best books. And if anybody who's an entrepreneur or wants to start up a company or is just looking at big ideas uh, with Dreaming With Your Eyes Open, I has to read that book. Yeah, no, I think Dreaming With Your Eyes Open for me was a really good experience. It was a catharsis in many found because, you know, you sort of relive 10, 15 years. But I think I said it in the language and tonality that I wanted to. And I think that's also what works because I think that's very important. The tonality is important. So so today with what you are doing at Swades, which is your social initiative, what you're doing with Upgrade, I think one of your upgrade, big mission yeah. upgrade is yeah. to, up, to skill uh, the whole skilling part of this and with sports. What if... Just like Nanda Nilkani was invited to and to the government and he was able to build Aadhaar and as we know today, uh, that entire thing is the foundation of India's digital backbone. If you are invited by the Prime Minister to come and lead uh, any part of the ministry, what would you change in India? What would be your big idea around what can change in this country? You know, actually, strangely enough, I've given that a thought on my very early morning walks uh, because I think I'm very nationalistic and I think, you know, Swadesh is part of really bringing about change. Uh, And, you know, so I have sort of pictured um, either being an education minister or the the rural minister. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Both, actually. uh, and, And some days the sports minister. Okay, so the uh, and I think the sports minister would be very clear cut um, because I think it, we're starting think at if, such if, a base and level. And if India there. needs the Olympic gold medals, yeah, if, if yeah, there is anybody think, who can take in charge, no, seriously, of that. I think because we're at such a base level there that everything that one would do would be substantially incremental. I think education would be the would be as challenging as rural because it's such a complex problem. And I guess the key there is the big challenge for me why I would not be able to finally do that. And maybe what Nandan did very well was because he was the outsider insider and was looking at a very independent setting up an infrastructure that didn't have collaborativeness within 15 ministries that had to work together. But I think the big challenge here would be the challenge that all of them face, which is that, you know, without a budget, you can't really work on making a change. And there's so many other layers and factors. So having executed with Swades for the last four years, I just think I empathize with the government and hmm. the bureaucracy. And, you know, I'm not talking about the politicians, but by and large, that implementing cadre of people, that it's a very complex situation. Hmm. Uh, and I think most biggest problems is changing mindsets and creating aspiration levels in this country. I think we kind of take it for granted at that top 1% of uh, and 2% or 5% of people that we all kind of interact and talk to, that everyone is ambitious and everyone is sorted and everyone and is And everybody clear. wants to now do a but startup. Not, yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's really not. And, you know, I'd say 50% of India doesn't understand financial inclusion, which means they don't really understand what money is and what it can do to their life to make it better or different. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just very basic. And I know that because now I'm at the ground level interacting with these people week on week. Mm-hmm. So those are massive challenges. But yeah, I think between education, sports or rural um, minister, I'd be up for a challenge. You'll be up for the challenge. But what, what is the one thing which you think you'll be the... I mean, if you had to pick one, because it's if like... I had to pick if you one, just I'd pick, pick two education. more ministries, you can become the prime minister, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, not either or. No, I think if I, if I had to pick between the three, personally, I'd pick education. Because okay. frankly, 
that's the one single thing that can bring about incredible amount of change to this country. Mm-hmm. And it's the most needed thing. And it's the most needed thing for change today. And it's really rudimentary. It's a 10-year plan, but then a 15-year plan. But the rural will take its course. It is an, it's a complicated situation between infrastructure and livelihood and agriculture and economy and marketplace and so many. But education, we have no reason why we can't be world class. Mm-hmm. Absolutely unacceptable. Of course, sports is equally unacceptable. Yeah. But I just feel that's a challenge that is easier solved than education. And I think you have at least taken one part, which is esports. So we are hoping that at least in esports, India is going to reach somewhere. So what's I'm your... I'm putting my bet more on football. Oh, football. Yeah. So, I, so, think, so, I think we're 157th, so, moved to about 110th. You so know. for everybody out there, I want you to kind of quickly talk about what you're doing. Because what you're doing is very different. You don't have a team. You're no, we don't have a team. Like, unlike Kabaddi, where we're having a really good time with the with our U-Mumba team. In, in football, actually, the same happened. One examined the context of a league and realized that, wow, this is going to be a five to seven year, maybe 10 year investment uh, of a lot of a lot of money. And what could one do with that same amount of money that one would not do with a team and the fun that goes with owning a team? And it came up both to me and my co-founder. And again, with each of our things, even in education, I wouldn't be talking with this kind of articulate enough if it wasn't for my co-founders with Mayank and Ravi hmm. and Falgon. And same here with Supratik as my co-founder in, uh, in sports, which was really that at the core level, we can't really run a league if we're not in the top 100 nations of the world in terms of talent. The sport itself, yeah. Okay, I mean, Bollywood can't be an industry without its own talent in some form or whatever else. So I think, therefore, we said training and therefore ground-level training. Because the other thing in India is you think you have to start at 11, 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And the other part there is uh, career option in sports. Nobody today looks with, as it as a career option. Now, because there's so many leagues, for the first time, people are feeling... Okay, if Anup Kumar and Shabir Babu can can earn 50 lakhs to one crore in one season of Kabaddi, maybe that's an option. Yeah. Similarly in football, similarly everywhere else. So actually, we will overall take about 200 kids. But right now, we have 50 young kids between the ages group of 12, 13 and 14, with a little bit of them in 15, spending six years in Germany, in boarding, in a, obviously learning and academics. And an IB school also there. Yeah, and we've just started our own IB school there uh, in collaboration with the top two uh, schools in in. Um, And which city in Germany is this? So we're about an hour outside of Frankfurt. Okay. In a small place called Bietbert and the sports Schule in Bietbert. Got it. So what you are doing is taking these kids very, very young and now for the next five years. Five to six years, they're going to be there for training. And, you know, the big question that everyone asked, the parents asked us, they're all this great, but why can't you do it in Mizoram? Why can't you set up the same facility where my boys are a little bit closer to home? And we said two things. One, you're going to spoil them. Okay, every time they have a, a knee injury, you'll hmm. bring them back and say, beta for 15 days rest. Hmm, yeah. There, they can have a knee injury. The next day, they're, they have to be in the bus at 7 a.m. in the morning to get to the field. And they'll have the best physios. They'll have the best... So that's one, the whole them. element of discipline and rigor. And the second one, which people just do not understand, and that's why many of us go sometimes to American universities or universities abroad, is the competitiveness. So here, who do you play with? There, they're playing with teams that are far better than them. And that's the only way the game is going to improve, right? You go first, you want to learn tennis, you want to learn any sport, you play with the marker, then you play with people who are better than you so that your game improves. Mm -hmm. If you're going to constantly play with people who are worse than you, nothing's going to improve. So here, we don't have an ecosystem where these kids, whatever. And the best training that they're getting Monday to Thursday is phenomenal. But with the games that they're playing with peers on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, takes their game to the next level. 
And that is a missing link that people don't understand. And that, that applies in entrepreneurship, it applies in business, it applies in leadership, it applies in sport. And that's what's happened. The best example I give people is the app store. Yeah. So today your app is competing with Facebook and WhatsApp and Twitter and consumers have the choice to download these apps. So unless you are able to create your apps which are as good as them, absolutely, nobody is going to use them, which absolutely. is why Amazon and Flipkart or Uber and Ola will always have this constant struggle of competing with quality because... And the same is true with, with sport. And I think that's the kind of opportunity you are giving these kids by bringing them there, which is, yeah. again, yeah. Uh, very, very out of the box thinking. It and is the very result, out of the box. It's a, it's a 15 year uh, future thinking because for six years, all we're going to do is make investments. That's incredible. I mean, investing all this amount at grass. This is what actually the this government should be doing literally, right? Yes, yes, it, it, it could and should be doing that. And I think even if they do it in just Olympics, it'll be great. Even if they find, but I think that's some of the challenges. I think it's a question of selection, training, you know, and I think we're doing it in dribs and drabs. The Vishal Gondal Show will be right back after this break. Long, long ago, not in Bethlehem, but in a place nearby, there was a wonderful birth of a huge show, which I like to call Cyrus Says, a show that encapsulates everything in human history, from the first Homo sapien to the last Homo sapien, uh, who's traversed the entire world and then come back to India. This is a show which tells you everything about everything. If you want to know, avoid Google, come to us. It's called Cyrus Says. Get new episodes every Monday on the IBM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts on. You get one banana water free with every podcast. Right, I'll just check that. I'll just check that. After football, you are also hitting goals in a completely different segment, which you are again, once again, very passionate about, which is movies. But this time, RSVP, which is your new production house, has a very different agenda and very different approach. So how are you looking at the movie business now and how are you going to disrupt it this time? Well, to be honest, I'm not really looking for disruption, but I think... Um our vision is quite clear. I think because of my 10 years of great experience on that one, uh, and I think we spoke a little bit earlier about the things that one would want to do and not one would have to do, and the ability to say no gives you a lot of uh, scope as far as that is concerned. So I think I'm working with a very small but very sharp team of people, and my criteria are that you know we want to do... There are either three ways in which we're going to make the scripts. Because the first, most people in movies think, who's this, who's that, who's your director, who's your star cast? And I'm saying, really, it boils down to the stories. So either we're going to do stories that have to be told, okay? And that could be, for example, we're doing one or two sports biographies. We're doing a biography on Field Marshal Manik Shaw. But I think it's just not more about the person, because biographies today are not about the person, but about what they stand for. Because no, in India, story, yeah. I just feel we lack role models. We really lack role models in whatever sense of the word. In sports, in leadership, in IAS, in if you want to join the armed forces, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be a leader, you want to be an executive, we just lack role models. And I think, therefore, there are some stories that just have to be told. The second one is stories we would love to tell. And I think the third genre for us is what you go to the movies for. Okay, and there could be superheroes, they could be the enchanting ones. But with each of them, the script has to be the star. And I think that's why it's a very ground up approach. It's a little less collaborative in the sense is normally what in, when we did last time was more about somebody had an idea and we'd back it. This time it's about we're creating the idea and we'll back it. Got it. So RSVP is going to produce very different kinds of movies, which is, I would say, very content driven, very story driven. 
Yeah, I mean, it'd be arrogant for me to say very different kind of movies. I just think it would be exactly in the, you know, and, and what there's a now, narrative that we are very clear and we yeah. want to follow that narrative. And now, what do you see the role of all these OTT channels? How has the movie business changed compared to five years back? You know, in some ways it hasn't changed because I still think at the core, our trained writing talent, which is good, but it's not great. Uh, and I think that's really, we need, you know, there might be five or 10 of them. We need 50, 100, 200 of them. And I think unless we get that right, and second, the respect that we need to do with a little bit, because everything can't be based on gut. So there are some things that just haven't changed, you know, where when you fail and when you make mistakes, when you run something, when you're an entrepreneur, you learn from that and you move forward and you just don't go back on that. Mm. And I think that part of acquiring and taking that learning is not. When it comes to digital platforms today, I think the good part is two things. One, it's allowed a lot of people who want to create content, uh, but television has really gone now into the SEC, B, C, and D, uh, and not really that. So there's an entire narrative that has to be told in a very mass medium form. And television is actually is about that very, very mass medium form. And if you don't have stories to tell in that zone, you're kind of lost. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the digital mediums now start allowing you to talk to the people who you, who you were talking to maybe 10 years back and a much larger audience now that don't watch television because it's too mass for them and they want something that's a little bit more evolved. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think digital medium has opened up for a creative talent of people, a lot of that. But it's also created a new source of revenue stream. Yeah, so I think clearly there was a time when movies used to rely a lot on broadcasting rights and then yeah, movie it still rights. Re relies on that. And I think this is one more new avenue. But isn't, uh, you know, for example, what Geo has done with, you know, all their digital channels and YouTube, isn't that going to finally impact broadcasting at some point of time? You know, I think YouTube has been now around for a long period of time. And there's a certain segment of audience that goes there. And you can say it's for snacking or it's a little bit more than snacking. It's free content uh, in a very different, but I don't think you're going to be able to consume that stories that need to be told and in that element. That's but, but not the Netflix place that you would go to. Amazon so Prime. that's that's a that's a different that's a that's a studio model in a very different sense in the digital medium. That if you don't want to go to the movie theater, then you'll watch it on Netflix. But you know, for a market like India, it's still very niche. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's in the 10,000s and not even in the 100,000s of subscriptions when it comes to a Netflix. Because yeah. one of the problems is, and there are so many of these multi-channel networks and all these people in the digital content space who are not being able to monetize a lot of their content. So what do you see wrong there? Why are all these companies not able to scale? Uh, which companies? All these companies who are investing in all kinds of digital content, multimedia. No, because their model is advertising based. It's not subscription based. And everyone knows the difficulty on subscription. So they'd all love to move into the subscription base, but very few have. And then you normally say, when I'll start with advertising and then I'll move to that. And then it never happens because if, if the consumer is used to getting it free and you're getting advertising, then they'll stay with that for the rest of their lives. So converting from advertising to a subscription base is almost next to impossible. Starting with that is a very tough because, call and decision. Because you, you at one point of time were looking to get into digital content yeah. also, but yeah. then you decided not to. You I think No, you in fact, yeah, I did. We started uh, with two other co-founders, uh, Are, and yeah. then I kind of stepped out of that in six months time. Uh, yeah, personally for me, it just sounded like a very long haul, you know, and if I was taking a long haul bet, which I'm doing like I am doing in football, just here it didn't sound there was going to be a gratification of that level unless it is at a different scale. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you take some of the multinationals that come in here, this is one more market for them to sort of air drop 
international content mm-hmm. for a slightly growing but still very niche target paying audience. Mm-hmm. But if you're starting to originate content, that's a whole new ball game. And I think, you know, some of the large platforms here, Amazon, Netflix, I know are blowing up a lot of money doing that here in India. But let's take the report card in two to three years, whether there's any ROI on those. So clearly, I would say that the strategy of all the studios will be really different now, given all these people have come in. Yeah. And I think, you know, the global media companies that have come in here have also learned their lessons. And it's, you know, today's star is highly successful. But when they started in 2001, sorry, 1992, when they bought, when Murdoch bought a star from Lee Ka Shing and entered into India, till 2002, you know, they would have burnt up multi-million dollars uh, in various learning curves, mistakes, and many things else, and Mm. then turned successful. So everyone's forgotten about those years. But if you look at the cumulative amount of capital employed that even the lead broadcaster would have done in India, it's not going to show up as a very good ROI. Yep. Clearly, I think it's a big challenge for all these people. Uh, So clearly, digital media is going through its own challenges. But you are also now very close to the internet world and you have invested in so many consumer internet companies and not, you know, similarly B2B companies. We have made a couple of investments together. So what are you seeing? What is your view of what's happening in the market right now? There is this whole, you know, gloom story of investment. No, so, and- so that's a different thing. I think consumer internet is very much working and going forward. I think the, the shadow that's been cast is primarily because of investor expectations. And unfortunately, media makes rock stars of people, not because because they build great businesses, but because of the money they've raised. Yeah. And that's such a wrong parameter. And now everyone's figured out that it's a wrong parameter. So mm-hmm. it's the same people putting them in the doghouse, the same people who lifted them and put them up into the stars. And now, the, when, you know, I think we've, we've been in media and we've understood exactly that when you're going up, you got to watch out for when you're coming down. So, so which are some of your investments which you are really talk, you were proud about? I know you keep talking about Lenskart a yeah, lot. Yeah. A, because I, I, I'm really fond of and very, uh, work very closely with Piyush, who's the founder of that. Uh, and it's a very lovely segment. And I think it's just a very sensible approach where, you know, India is not a market where you can just completely accelerate only in online. So we've married online and offline in a very, yeah, a very interesting segment. Yeah, they have 300 over 300 stores. Yeah, so it's in a very interesting segment. I think with ShopClues, there's something very different that the team there has built also. It's taken a straight gone to the tier two, tier three market, a different price threshold. Yeah, I'd seen their holding in Jodhpur or God knows yeah. somewhere. So uh, it is. That's, you know, we are much more penetrated in tier two and tier three than Flipkart and Amazon. Um, so when you, you know, we were always spoken in the same breath as Flipkart, Amazon, Snapdeal, and then Shopclose, but actually we were always a very differentiated product. Now that Snapdeal is pretty much uh, subsumed in some form or the other and has become a two-people race, Shop Clues, I think, will shine even we'll be more. Maybe the dark horse, yeah. Yeah. And which are your other companies you like? You think are... So I think we've you know, we invested in an AI, artificial intelligence company called Nikki.ai down in Bangalore. Very smart for a bunch of four people. We've done one or two in the QSR in space. In fact, I met them. Is, yeah, I'd met yeah. them. So, so on the uh, QSR is the food place. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right now challenged overall. Okay. That whole model has got and to figure which were, out. Which were the two companies? Uh, here in, in Mumbai with Marush and then yeah. in Delhi with a company called Yamist. But again, I would say that's a very challenging space for most people. At QSR, there are all Overall, these home yeah. deliveries and yeah. all these yeah, things. I think delivery, just the price threshold, the level of discounting at the food level and the level of discounting at the delivery level uh, has, has kind of skewed the business in a very different manner. And are you seeing any difference in the kind of business plans which are coming into you now versus five, ten years no, back? The or? maturity is not there, I have to say. Even now? Yeah. There is Everyone's not, in la-la land. People have not learned... 
There isn't a maturity. I wouldn't say whether they've not learned or not. But, you know, I mean, the main point is if you're making an Excel sheet for an investor, you're in trouble because then you're not building the company as you see it. You're trying to build a company as you hope somebody else will see it. And then it's a screwball approach because you're neither building it with your own vision nor is the other vision definitely great because it's your assumption of what the other person is thinking of you. So that's flawed, conceptually flawed. And look, there'll always be five success stories for 5,000 that won't get it right. Yeah. So of course, I know this is again a little bit of a paradox for you because you don't take as many vacations. But given all these things happening, how do you unwind? How do you get time for yourself? Actually, quite well. To be honest, I have to say... Um, Reading right now is taking a fair amount of my time and it's quite diverse from understanding in the sectors of education, specifically sports, a little bit in some of the sectors that is one is in, including insurance and consumer internet. The second one, I think, is my two hours in the morning that are quite to myself, you know, between 6.30 and 8.30, between my one hour brisk walk with either wind or rain lashing on your wow. face. And then an hour of either uh, a workout with a trainer or yoga. So that's very much good private very productive thinking time uh, and reflection time, which is a combination of a lot of things because I think it gives you a lot of personal satisfaction. So, so any books you would recommend to read? I'm right now reading a lovely book called Joy, which is a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it happened on one of their 80th birthday in the Dharamshala. And some American writer was there to document the entire seven days of it. But it's and I think at this stage and all, we're always looking for the real meaning of the word happiness, yep. right? I'm still trying to find that exact <laughs> meaning, but it's just said in such an, it's also, you kind of learn in life what things are not. Sometimes you get an answer what they are by also knowing what they're not. Yep. So sometimes you get that answer. So yeah, I think it varies. So I think some, thanks to my daughter and my wife, I did, I mean, reading a lot more books on finding joy, happiness happiness. and spirituality because they're very deeply in that. Uh, in a very good sense, and and not in some Zaina esoteric goes sense. To Vipassana every year. Yeah, yeah, that's been she's been regular there, but now she does. She and both Trisha do a lot of uh, philosophy classes, and mm-hmm. not in some very esoteric sense. A very, very grounded. But you have never done Vipassana till date. No, I have. I have so, not. So how was how was that? You were not roped into it, even I don't though know. you know. Just I don't Zaina know. I guess it requires a very different tenacity, and maybe I'm not ready for it. That ten days of I don't have a problem with the ten days of not talking because anyway, I'd be quite happy not talking for a couple of days or ten days. I think, yeah, I don't know. I think it's something you go to when you feel the need for it. And I haven't found the need for it. I'm not yet in this, who am I and what am I here for? Uh, I've not entered that zone. Maybe because I have some of the answers or maybe I don't think I want to look for the balance part of the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's also a lot about that. Yeah. So apart from Joy, any other book you recommend? Or you gift any books to people? Or mm, Yeah, no, actually, I, I'm, no, I'm not a very good gifter. Really not a very good gifter. In fact, my, both, my, any- both my dad and mom keep telling me, at least give me a card on my birthday <laughs> if you're not giving me a gift. Because at that age that they are, my dad's 96, my mom's 90. Touch wood, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, but yeah. I think all of us need to check our RC genes as to why yeah. this happens. Uh, yeah, so the only thing they really treasure is a written card. And I can understand the importance of that. But no, I'm not a very good gifter in life. So uh, apart from books, are you also into music? Uh, as more 
as a background as a backdrop yes as a some, some of your movies had some of the best music yeah 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 so i yeah i think that's what i'm saying so it's something that's can inspire you a lot so i mean you know to listen to music when you're on your walk so it's different moods for different styles you know and i think i used that a lot when i was writing the book dream with your eyes open you know because late friday evenings is when i would proofread and do that and all of sunday was about writing and scratching and writing and i think music played a big if i was getting really down and out I'd have to change the tempo of music in different senses. But, but you are also very fond of your dog. I think pets are also something which are important yeah. to you. You had yeah. a pet all your life. No, no. No, I was shocked when Zaina walked in the room and says, "You think we can get a dog?" And I was going, "Um, yeah." And she kind of knew in my face that I wasn't that happy about it. And I just said yes instinctively. And you know, it, it's like when you know. I think about within one week of him walking into the house, I'd completely melted and and been a convert. And it's been thirteen years since. Mm, yeah, I know. I know how fond yeah. you are, and you. Yeah. Yeah. So, and do you think that having pets make a difference, or? Yeah, it? I think it does. I think it changes a lot of your temperament. I think it's that other form of recreation, really. If you can spend even fifteen, twenty minutes, it's therapeutic. In many so, ways. so you don't drink. You don't. I don't drink. You don't smoke. Uh, so what gets you high? But do you really think liquor can get you high? No, I mean, what else gets you high? You don't. You don't. You don't take any substance. I know that. So what gets you high? No, I think high. Because creative. It's it said that creative people need the high. Right? No, I so, think high. The important part of being high is being naturally high, not artificially high. I think liquor is about being artificially high, being momentarily high. Because you know, people and if when people see these Silicon Valley TV shows and all of that, and you know, this whole impression has been made that if you are in startup in movies, it's all about partying and no, drinking. No, that, I, that, that, is that I think is a myth. In as far as the movies, there has been a big disservice to it. I don't drink. And I don't necessarily socialize, and I think I'm quite to the point. In about four minutes, I would dry up in a general conversation with anyone. It wasn't about something specific, but I don't think I'm lost because of that under any circumstances. But uh, I think one thing which I really miss now, and I have not be, done that for some time, is the amazing Parsi food we get at your house. Mm, yeah. So is that one of your weaknesses? The, the food. Um, food, I think we're foodie. I think if you're ever going on holidays, we all first regroup about food. It's all about food. So I think food is a very, very, yeah, we're all foodies. We're all hardcore and foodies. And not the necessarily. at your place. Yeah, one is the Parsi foodies, but when you're traveling, you have a different context in that. But I have to say in the last four or five years, I do miss, um, I think if one is traveling overseas and about the third day, uh, if the cuisine is too bland, it kind of gets to the you. Spice, yeah. yeah. I know Zarina carries spice with her, yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, she does. So do I. I think we, yeah, <laughs> we, we also yeah, carry yeah, 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 So yeah. which, which spices do you carry? No, no, I'm carrying raw mirchis and red pepper with me completely, absolutely. It's a must, I think, because you can't handle well, it up. Well, something. that's a life hack for me, you know, carry your chilies and uh, red. That's better than carrying teplas and chudas, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I think. <laughs> Which I think I miss. Like sometimes when you're out there and you see, wow, that's a smart thing. I can totally relate to why you would carry your chivras and your teplas. Because food is an important part of taking a break, right? Because it's out of your normal rhythm. So what is your routine like? You Like you said, you exercise and… Yeah, I think 6.30 to 8.30 is about workout. And then it the journey could be anything, anywhere. Interacting, Yeah, the days are pretty long. I think they haven't got shorter by any stretch of imagination. And now you said you have a very early dinner. Yes, but that's more with my diet. That doesn't stop me or pause me. So the only thing is that I have dinner at the office, which is normally quite odd, right? Mm. Because you want to know dinner is at least one meal you think you have at home. But if you want to have get done with dinner by 6.30, later 7.30, then it's an odd one because I'm still having meetings. And even there outside people, I say, sorry, but I have to have my dinner. Yeah. 
so i remember that when we were having these meetings with you suddenly uh, somebody used to walk in with this little chit and hand you over this little posted with some words written on it and you were suddenly so much more smarter in those meetings so these were according to me your life hacks so what were what were these chits all about and what are these other things you do which are very unique to you which make you what you are i think uh, just day before yesterday i was judging somewhere and this uh, this gentleman who kind of runs is is an industrialist he turned to me and said you're the t-shirt guy right i mean wherever you go you're always in a friggin t-shirt i mean we, <laughs> there were six of them we were all part of a jury all of them had suits and i was in a t-shirt and i said yeah but he says i just want to tell you it's t-shirts right because even some people don't wear jackets they'll wear a shirt but you only wear a t-shirt and i said yeah i just yeah, actually yeah, simplifies life so much my thing is only red even more simplified and and the point is that i have some very few range of t-shirts so when i'm traveling with people and especially colleagues i have to clarify them that look guys i do laundry because otherwise i have these <laughs> i have these four v-neck t-shirts and four collar t-shirts in green and four different colors and then you keep wearing them so the probability in a 7 day trip if you're traveling someone is that you're wearing the same clothes at least 3 times you say look i've got multiple shirts of the same color <laughs> but it's just i think it cuts down the decision making on your wardrobe so you certainly don't have uh, yeah. check so in like i never really thought about a wardrobe with the sole exception of when my daughter was getting married a couple of months back yep so i think uh, that's the first time i invested time into oh god and you know who does one go to you know Uh, no, I don't want to wear a suit. So, you know, is it going to be Manish Malhotra? Is it yeah. going to be X, Y, Z? And then, it's it's really stressful. And then I said, I'm yeah, not coming for a really trial. Stressful. I just I'm not going to come for a trial. <laughs> it's really stressful. Apart from that, what are your other hacks? No, I think just my routine in the morning that is now become quite an important part of me. I think my consciousness about diet. And look, I'm 60. So, and you, you actually look younger than what you Yeah, were. but this is a podcast, so now I don't think anyone can relate to that because <laughs> they cannot going to be able to see us right now here. <laughs> so, just to put that into perspective, yeah, I think with all the companies that one is working with, whether in the companies that we've invested in or an upgrade and whatever else, all my co-founders are half my age, okay? And obviously I'm I'm in sectors where if you don't think young, you're out of it in any case. So, I guess part of that is to be fit and sometimes i say you know we have 18 members in our kabaddi team and if one person has a bad injury maybe i'll have to step up on the field <laughs> so, so let's get out there i already started to train for that yeah, yeah actually on sunday i went to the dehradun we got where the camp is just half a day uh, and obviously the best way you can uh, is to play kabaddi is to, is, right? yeah is to is to be with the team is to be part of the workout right otherwise what are you going to really have a chat about So that is amazing. So we are going to very soon see you in one of the kabaddi matches. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Yeah. I remember coming for the opening of the first ever game, and yep. I think yep. you were really, really excited. Yeah. So yeah. next yeah. time, I've been a very strong believer in the sport. So should be so, fun. So, uh, is there anything you would, any advice you would give to yourself now that you have so much experience on the hind side? If you could go back and uh, give one advice to yourself, let's say when you were twenty or twenty-five, or when you were starting your cable TV business. what would that be you know amongst everything else i think it would be focus because for everything that we've all spent the better part of this one and a half hours talking about which is multitasking and how one does it badly goodly or whichever way we look at it but that's not something that i've constantly traded with okay and i think uh, i don't know what i'm missing out on that if i cleared my deck and decided the only thing i wanted to do was upgrade how would life be very different or whatever else 
but I'm not cut out for that. That's not my DNA. Uh, I'm not because I'm fidgety and not because I want to be multitasking, but it's just that today when I'm not running something, I can't be unilateral or just one, one dimensional in that. Uh, but I think overall, today I'm spending a lot more time. There are a lot more things that come about, opportunity knocks, and that word focus reminds me now to be a lot more grounded in every decision that I take today. Absolutely. Focus has been the, yeah. the key for, for everybody. Yeah. And therefore, that again equals to saying no more often than you say yes. Yeah. So I think clearly being the ability of saying no is very important while there is an entire school of thought which says say yes to everything and all of that. But I think it's also about elimination. Yeah. I think and it's I, about... I'm, I'm, I'm one who says opportunity knocks kind of open the door and I'm saying opportunity knocks, be selective. Be selective, yeah. And I think that's the million dollar question on which opportunity to say yes and which to say no to. Is there any piece of uh, equipment or anything you bought which is under 10,000 rupees, which has changed your life or you use a lot or which has kind of improved you? Yeah, I have to say my yoga mats and there's two balls uh, that I have to massage my hips with oh. and my glutes with every morning okay. after I do my one hour wow. walk has really changed because that 15 minutes of that routine with that one back, it's not a massager. That's mm. what, so that's one. Mm. And in the night, it's my what I call thumper, mm. which I do with for my feet for 15 okay. minutes. So at about... 10 o'clock in the night, I'm ready to go for another three hours because of my 15-minute uh, thumper, thumper massage that I do with all my feet. Because as you know, when you massage, your feet is the epicenter of all exactly. your blood circulation for your entire body and relieving of stress, relieving pain. So buying a yoga mat is absolutely... So not the mat, but even the balls that go with it. So, you know, just that whole reflex action and I think the thumper so that's one on more the sort of physical and is there side. any brand you recommend no, or no so but I think the thumpers I've always been with the Brookstone which is mostly available in the US mm -hmm. so you first time I land at airport the last airport I'm leaving with I always pick up a new thumper it's $39 or something mm -hmm. like that but it's it's the best investment and I, I on days when I'm traveling and I miss that is like you know you're not going to get some really good sound sleep yeah. because of that. So are you fussy about something that only this particular brand of something what you use or only this particular company or this particular restaurant? Is there certain things which no, you? No, I dare want? say I'm not that finicky and choosy. Uh, having said that, all my clothes are from this sort of uh, company called Tommy Bahamas, where most people say, "Sorry, what?" Tommy kind of, Bahamas. Tommy Bahama. Tommy yeah, okay. I mean, it's just one of those stores I discovered in LA that just, it's very comfortable, very casual, and very soft clothes. So you only go to buy yeah. that, that So that's one. it. I mean, it's like one maniacal thing. If I'm in the US and then I, first thing I go ask the concierge, where's the nearest Tommy Bahama store? And oh. the guy's looking at me saying, you've just checked into the four seasons <laughs> and why are you asking for Tommy Bahama kind of situation? <laughs> well, now I, I'm going to LA next, in September, so I'll get you a, yeah. and by, hopefully your si you'll require a smaller size. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm getting better at my sizes now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, I think just a, a few more questions before we come. So, so Ronnie, it's been phenomenal. I think this discussion I've had with you, what is the three or four things which you believe everybody should be doing if they are starting a business or running a business and which they are more or less not good at? I don't know about whether you're good or not. I think that's a good first point, actually, just to figure out what are your strengths? What are you good at? And then you've got to find the complementary skills with some other people. I'm not recommending that everyone has co-founders by any stretch of imagination because it's tough. It's good and it's bad. And if you get it wrong, you really get it wrong. 
But I think understanding your strengths is going to be very, very important. I think the second one is this whole magical thing that everyone feels that, you know, I got a great idea. And more than that, the worst thing that everyone goes and says, no, no, you know, I don't want to share my idea because somebody will copy it. And I think that's really flawed because firstly, you can't pause at the end. There's no such thing as a really great idea unless you have a really strong execution plan. And there's no such thing as you can keep it to yourself because that means it's the worst thing possible because every idea will need fine tuning in some form or the other. And if you don't get other people's opinions and if you're that arrogant enough to think that people will be able to copy it, it's flawed. And the probability is somebody else anyway will execute it better than you are. Um, so I think the third one is be convinced about the fact that if you're building the business, build it with your vision in mind. And this whole context of raising money, which seems to be the best way to go forward and it's that's become a badge of honor, of success. Yeah, that's that because it's become a badge of honor, it's a really wrong step because it's getting you to be you know, half convinced about your own vision. And most of the time, your first question is, and that's, that's the most thing. So as an investor, what are you looking at? Uh, I'm looking at your vision. Why you, I, if you want to do something is to first find out what I'm looking at in you. I don't want to invest in you. So that is really a flawed context that most people are wondering, what does the person want from me for my business rather than this is what I want to do. This is the change I want to make. And the real people who have succeeded are very clear about that. So 20 years forward or 30 years forward, I'm sure that there's going to be a movie made on your life. Uh, no, I don't do know about think, that part. Or let's assume that somebody is going to make a movie on your life. What do you think will be the climax of that movie? Uh, um, the last, the, how will that movie end? I don't know. The good part is that I'll be able to sit back and watch it and not get stressed about scripting it. Somebody else <laughs> is going to have to be able to figure that one out. But, you know, I mean, not to duck the question, but I think today when I'm looking at biopics of people, um, my first criterion is, look, it's not important that the per- you need to know the person. So we're making a movie on Ram Jaitmalani. I'm assuming that 70% of the people don't know anything about Ram Jaitmalani, especially the younger audience. But the main point is, I think if you can leave a sense of inspiration or emotion or empathy, those are the ones that really stick in your mind. So if I can have been slightly inspirational or slightly showing empathy or have evoked a very strong emotion, that'd be great. Well, all I can tell you, Ronnie, that you have had a big impact in my life. I owe a lot to where I am because of uh, you and uh, I have no doubt in that. And I'm sure the millions of people out here who are listening, who are getting connected with you through your Twitter, Facebook, through all your companies, all your initiatives will get the same benefit. Uh, I hope to come back to you for another interview, given that you're doing so many things. But once again, thanks a lot. It's been an absolute Thank you. pleasure. It was lovely. To go beneath the force and get to know what you're all about. All the thank very you. best to you and thank you. Lovely. Thank you. Excuse me, madam. What is the menu? In the menu, there are scenes, podcasts, on-course, Cyrus, Made in India, Rediscovery Project, Empowering Series, Sexwax, IVM Likes, Simplified, Keeping It Queer, Things and Destinations, My Neighbor Zuckerberg, and The Fan Garage. What do you want to repeat? Repeat, repeat. We will go to ivmpodcast.com and listen to all of them. Or download the app on all of them.